I don't really know how to start shows. Come on now, don't start, don't start liking me now. So yeah, I'm funny compared to you. Know, well, you'll see later. I stand for my I know a lot of fucking idiots. I think a lot of shit is mean spirited just because it goes against what they believe. But the relief of comedy is it takes things that aren't funny and it allows us to laugh about them for an hour. We got a purple suit to buy and a gigantic coffin. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Why You Laughing, a history of comedy podcast. And today, I am pleased to introduce to you the legendary Lucille Ball, the first lady of comedy, um, one of the most, certainly one of the most legendary figures in television history for many reasons. Um, but my main takeaway from doing research on her was um, her honesty. That's the thing I kind of appreciated most because I watched a lot of these interviews with her when she was on with, uh, you know, Dick Cavett and Carson and Barbara Walters and all these people. And um, I like now in the generation that we kind of grew up in and everything um, for women, I think there's a pressure to tell your story, you know, to talk about the hardships in your life and everything. Uh, whereas Lucille Ball, like in every interview I could find, was like, I wasn't even that good at comedy. I don't know. I was just a, <laughs> I was I a good actress. I lucked into it. <laughs> I'm not funny. I just have good timing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, she's she's a, a very interesting character, and um, uh, you certainly, like I said about Mort Saul, um, you certainly can't tell the history of comedy without talking about Lucille Ball. So uh, I do always hope people are interested in these episodes. I know. Um, more current topics are always more popular, I think. At least that's what the uh, numbers tell us. But uh, I do hope people are interested in these. And then uh, if that's the case, we'll go through other characters from that era. Because I'd like to do like, um, you know, the Marx Brothers and shit like that. I, I really do think like the Three Stooges episode and Lenny Bruce and those guys were genuinely very interesting. So if you haven't listened to those, I do recommend it. And the easiest way to find all of those archives would be blindmike.net. And I should start saying, uh, because someone did send me a funny exchange that uh, they were having, or they saw on social media or something. They just sent me a screenshot of someone saying, uh, I've been listening to this podcast. Why are you laughing? And just realized it's blind Mike from Barstool. So they just accidentally stumbled upon it and had no idea who I am. So I should say, yes, I am blind Mike. And that's why you should go to blindmike.net to check out Why You Laughing, the Blind Mike Project. Who are these socials? The free links for all of those, including our YouTube page, are there. Um, And you can also uh, check out the Patreon if you want bonus episodes. Uh, We just did episodes about Donald Glover's one-off special, Weirdo, that aired on Comedy Central uh, about 12 years ago. We did Bill Burr's Philly Rant that kind of launched his career. That's a bonus episode as well. Um, and both of those were in the last couple of weeks. So if you want to check those out, please subscribe to the Patreon. If you'd be so kind, blindmike.net. You can find all those links. Um, so yeah, Lucille Ball was, um, a pioneer in comedy as they say. And, um, again, to correlate her to modern women, they talk about, uh, it's, it's, you know, very difficult for, older women in Hollywood. There aren't a lot of roles for older women, but uh, Lucille Ball is an example of someone who didn't get famous until essentially her forties and then was consistently on television well into her sixties and beyond. So uh, definitely a very 
um, what's the word? I- innovative and um, trailblazing is the word I'm looking for. Career uh, in the very early days of television. But uh, she got into the business at a very young age. Her dad died um, when she was quite young. Her mother remarried and she was kind of raised by her uh, step grandparents. Um, her mother didn't really have a lot of money, all that situation. Um, but they were able to enroll her in an acting school. She went to the same acting school as Betty Davis, who was uh, a starlet of that era. Very ended up being very famous, and that was the case in school. Um, and so this is how kind of her acting career started out. Is uh, I believe where we're starting in our clips here. At 17, I left the countryside of upstate New York for I should, New York. Uh, this is probably obvious to everyone. Uh, that is not Lucille Ball. This is uh, from her book. Sorry. <laughs> At 17, I left the countryside of upstate New York for New York City. My mother and I chose to John Murray Anderson Robert Milton Theater School in New York, mainly because the tuition was a bit cheaper than in the other dramatic schools. To save even more money, I lived with some elderly friends of the family on Dykeman Street in Upper Manhattan, so I didn't have to pay for room and board. Oh, so uh, we have another clip from that. Uh, what's, What's the next one? Uh, the next one is rejection. Yeah, so this goes more to uh, the whole Betty Davis of it all because um, she was the the uh, apple of every teacher's eye during that time, and this is the feedback that Lucille Ball got. On the silver screen, too, her name was Betty Davis. At the end of the term, the school wrote my mother and told her, we're very sorry, but your daughter does not have what it takes to be an actress. (laughs) She would be wasting her money and yours if we continued our education with her. This was crushing. I couldn't take it. I felt lonely, homesick, and lost. I couldn't face the sneers and snickers that I would be getting if I went back home to Jamestown. But I knew it was justified. There were 70 students who began that term, and only 12 made it through to be allowed to go on, and I knew I wasn't in that 12, but I saved that letter for motivation. Uh, The letter went on to say, there's definitely zero chance that she innovates television and is one of the most famous people of the 1950s. So it's oddly, <laughs> they were, it's crazy how wrong they were actually, but it is, uh, stories like that are always interesting. I do wonder if she, um, oh, well, I guess she's quoting the letter in the book. So maybe she did keep it. But, uh, I always wonder, like when you hear Jim Carrey wrote himself a check for a million dollars, we got, did you, or is it convenient to tell that story now? You know, now that you're an artiste. Yeah. How many clinically insane people <laughs> wrote themselves a check for a million dollars and did not make it, but he might be clinically insane. So maybe he did. Yeah, that's fair. But I, 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 that's pretty hilarious when you consider that they're saying, stop giving us your money. That's how bad we think you are. Like we are wasting your time. We, we, we wish we could take your money, but morally we can't do it. That's how bad they thought Lucille Ball was. <laughs> if you stay, if you graduate from here, we're gonna have to shut the school down. <laughs> so, um, I always took Lucille Ball as someone that 
like maybe I maybe I should say this is probably how I think of every woman in comedy is that they don't have a lot of confidence. Uh, and that's true of men in comedy, too. I think that's kind of how you get into it is low self-esteem and using it as a defense mechanism, being self-deprecating and everything. Um, so I kind of assumed that about Lucille Ball, but I didn't realize her first foray into showbiz was uh, through modeling. So uh, this is her talking about that a little bit. When I came to this town, I, all I knew about was trying to get into vaudeville. Mm-hmm. And um, I never got near even an agent. I never got inside a building, an office, anything that had anything to do with vaudeville. But finally, some girls that I met that were starving along with me uh, were going to a call at the Ziegfeld Theater. Casting call? Uh, yes, for um, a third road show of Rio Rita. It's many, many years ago. And uh, I made it. I made the call. I was chosen. One of, I don't know how many, I've forgotten. And I kept that job for five days. That was the longest I'd ever kept any job. That was just in rehearsal, of course. And at the end of five days... Hold on one second, sorry. uh, I just want to say this, too. Uh, Just because the story... This is a bit of a longer clip, so stay with us. But um, the story you're about to hear, a very... I I, I I don't know if brave is the right word, but um, unique that she would tell this story on Dick Cavett during this time. I think it's a... It involves a topic not a lot of people were very honest about or maybe completely unaware of. Um, so it's interesting that she goes into this story here. Very, you know, cold us out like that. That's it. Goodbye. Not even sweet about it. Well, they, they didn't even know our names. Mm-hmm. So I was so terrified because I'd already written home and told everyone that I was a Ziegfeld girl. I didn't say that uh, I was just going on the road and something, but yeah. <clears throat> it sounded great in Jamestown, New York. And... Uh, I was out, out on the street, literally. Even the theater's gone now. But I was right out there on that street, whatever it was, where the Ziegfeld Theater was, and I was crying. And I I just wouldn't leave the area, wouldn't leave the premises. Everybody else had gone home, but I just stood there crying. And a man came out. His name, I think, was Henry Sharp. I'm not sure. He's dead now. Uh, But he was a right-hand man to Mr. Ziegfeld. And he said, what's the matter? And I told him. And I was sobbing, and he said, well, it's ridiculous to stand there and cry. There are other jobs. He didn't know that I had never been anywhere near a job before that. And he said, the thing for you to do is just go on about your life, find another job. Well, sounded so sad. And he walked away, and I followed him for about two blocks like an idiot, and sobbing and, and being, a, you've never heard this either, Lucy. And I, I just cried so, so and he finally said, will you, will you go away? Stop following me. <laughs> You get me arrested. So I stopped, and I turned the other way, and I went toward Fifth Avenue. And I remember saying, I've got to kill myself. I've got to die. I can't tell anybody at home what's happened to me. So I tried to figure how I'd do it. I did serious. Oh, yes. I was not quite serious enough to do it, but I thought I was. I was so depressed. Well, I was only 16. And uh, I walked toward Fifth Avenue, and a big limousine passed, huge limousine. I hadn't seen anything that big in my life. And I thought, if you're gonna get hit, hit by a big one. <laughs> in case you don't die, you know? Uh-huh. So I tried to throw myself in front of the limousine. Instead of that, it just stopped. <laughs> so I picked myself up and I went on back to my little room. That was, it. That was the end of my suicide attempt. 
<laughs> so, I mean, obviously she didn't do it, but I, and it has kind of a funny punchline to it, but like, I think that's pretty ballsy to just openly talk about suicide like that on the Dick Cavett show in the seventies or whatever right, that was. Right. You know, depression wasn't even, you know, I, and maybe this is how it's been spun um, over the years, but my basic understanding of how depression was viewed in uh, in that era was you were either a mopey sad sack or nuts, you know? <laughs> Those are kind of the ways they viewed depression. Yeah, so for her to openly talk about that is pretty interesting. They used to have housing for people like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the other, my other takeaway kind of from that clip is at the beginning when she's talking about vaudeville. There, yeah, I know we talk about it all the time on these older episodes, but there really is like... At that time, there was one lane into showbiz, essentially, and everyone was on it. So I think it was, I've said this before, but a lot easier. The talent pool was much, much smaller. So if you were able to break into showbiz, I think it was easier to maintain some sort of success. But it was a lot harder to get in. Now we have, you know, 50 million different ways to get your name out there. But then it was like, you know, your vaudeville, your you perform on Broadway. There weren't a lot of options for you out there, you if know. You, if you got on TV back then, you were a household name within like a week and a half. Yeah, right. Which I mean, that's pretty much what Lucy did, which we'll talk about in a second. But uh, yeah, she she is kind of like a lot of these earlier people. I think um, you know Lenny Bruce is obviously different because. He was just a drug addict that wanted to speak truth to power, man. You know, <laughs> yeah, he just man. liked being on stage. Right. And I think the Stooges seemed like they genuinely liked making people laugh. But for a lot of people, it was like, hey, how do I get into movies or how do I get on Broadway? And that was essentially uh, Lucy's path. She's like, hey, I'll try modeling. And then maybe I'll uh, take some, you know, bit acting parts here and there. And then she ended up working herself to um, she was one of the women they called Queen of the Bee film, where she was she was, you know, had supporting roles in bigger movies. And the movies she starred in were kind of that, you know, second tier, um, not as popular, but she had a bigger role in them. And, uh, you know, I th- you could make a nice living at that time, certainly. Uh, but she wasn't getting the uh, fame and fortune that I think she desired. But there were other ways um, into, well, there wasn't even, te- I was going to say there were other ways into television. She kind of created those ways because she wasn't even in TV yet. So I don't want to get ahead of myself before we get into radio, but what's our next clip? Uh, I heard talking about modeling. Oh, okay, cool. Let's hear that first. At that point, did you have this thing, Sammy, no. to succeed? No. Never had that. I just wanted to get into show business, and I didn't know what show business was. I thought it was vaudeville. The only thing that I ever made, even the audition for, was as a showgirl. But I couldn't keep the job as a showgirl. So finally I said, I have to eat, so I'm going to become a model. And I got a job as a model. I became a good model. And I went from 7th Avenue to wherever Hattie Carnegie was. I can't remember the street now. And uh, some other places. And then I did fashion shows. And then I also did, uh, what you call it, um, modeling for artists who did the big 24 sheets. Nude? No! Well, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. Nude. Well, well, I thought, big. what's a 24 sheet? Well, that doesn't mean it's nude. No, I didn't say it was. I put a question mark after that. 
really. <laughs> um, Would you ever do a nude scene in, in, in a, in no, a film? No, I'm not that attractive. If I had been that attractive, I probably would have. But I, I wasn't, so I was lucky. I see I had to do something else, and that's how I got into comedy. Yeah. <laughs> These old broads had their confidence so beaten down. Like, you listen to Lucille uh, Ball there. By the way, I may have already done it. Um, I should have said this at the beginning. Um, there's a chance I call her Lucille Bluth several times throughout this episode because uh, that character had a much bigger impact on me individually mm. <laughs> in comedy. But uh, I apologize. Get over it. I'm acknowledging it right now. <laughs> um but yeah, Lucille Ball and uh, you ever listen to like Phyllis Diller? All these old bags are like, ah, I'm an ugly old bitch. <laughs> they, <laughs> they go right to self-deprecating. <laughs> oh, yeah. Almost instantly. Which, that, that's something you can kind of say, you know, if you watch anything from like old vaudeville or the Catskills, any of that type of shit, um, you know, other than what Rodney became, it's kind of them like giving it to the audience. You know, like Rickles style. Mm. But women did kind of, uh, you know, not 100%, but they were at the forefront. That's a better way of putting it than saying they specifically started it. Um, but they were definitely at the forefront of self-deprecating humor. Um, you know, I don't know if that's always what uh, I Love Lucy in particular was, but that clip made me think of uh, Phyllis Diller. That's why that thought popped <laughs> into my head. Never a bad thought. What uh, What's next? Uh, radio. Yeah, so now we're radio. So like I said, she was in, I assumed radio came first. Um, but it turns out, she no, she was in a lot of these film roles that she got. Uh, she also worked with the Stooges and the Marx Brothers, which is a pretty cool comedy note. But um, yeah, she, she had a lot of these, you know, bit parts or smaller films and, um, you know, made a nice living and apparently made enough people like her. That she ended up getting a job in radio on what was basically a radio sitcom. It was called, uh, was it My Favorite Husband? I yep. think was the name of it. Yep. Um, so it, it was, well, we'll hear, we'll hear it now and you'll get the vibe that this was a sitcom before sitcoms existed. George, is this your library book, How to Play Mahjong? Oh my God. By the I way, if you're like, who the hell is that? <laughs> uh, Lucille Ball's voice did take a turn for the worse at some point. <laughs> Heavy smoker. Yeah, cigarettes and other health issues uh, definitely got to her. So yeah, this is, uh, this is Lucille. George, is this your library book, How to Play Mahjong? Oh my gosh, I forgot about it. I'll bet it's overdue. Uh, what's the date on it? Let's see, uh, May 13th. Well, it's only a week overdue. May 13th, 1936. <laughs> well, then you're going to have it. What? You want me to handle a hot book? I'm no fence. Listen, Pear Shape. Go sell your book. No bottom. All right. George. What's the matter? Look, on the second shelf, little men is leaning against little women. <laughs> Look, George. What? They've had a little pamphlet. You want me to hold a book? You know I can't do no fancy reading. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, you can even tell they're like they're all they already in 1940 or whatever that was. They'd already developed the sitcom format that right. existed all the way up through. 
according to Jim and King of Queens and all these other shows Mm -hmm. where it's the sassy broad is giving the husband the business. Exactly. (laughs) And they didn't let go of that for 60, 70 years. And they held on to that. (laughs) But um, that was a, that was actually a very popular radio show. It seems very strange to us now, the idea that, uh, families would gather around and listen to the radio, but they didn't know no better. Um, and actually the interesting thing I kind of found is, um, this is towards the end of the thirties. And at that time, uh, Lucille Ball was also making television appearances. So her TV appearances date all the way back to the thirties, which is the closest thing you could compare it to now would be like someone who was in season one of house of cards or something where you're like, is anyone watching this? I have no idea. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, like I I think that's a time where, you know, people had televisions, but not really, not everyone. Um, So yeah, she uh, got into the game early and that financially that definitely paid off. It's like getting into, you know, investing in Amazon in 1998 is essentially what she did because, um, that's uh, RKO Studios that she uh, worked for there on the radio. And this so- show was so popular that they said, Lucy, you've got it. And we want a piece of it. We want to give you a show on television. Um, but during this time, while she was on the radio show, she met Desi Arnaz. Um, so we'll get into uh, kind of how, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself with that because I think it's a very interesting story. But um, her and Desi have a uh, uh, an interesting relationship. I didn't see the movie um, that they just made uh, called uh, the what was it the, the the being the Ricardos or something like that. I didn't see it. Uh, I heard mixed reviews on it. If they weren't able to make a home run out of this out of these two, I mean, oh, it was ripe for drama. They were a reality show before, you know, 50 years before that was even a thought. Right. Like these two, these two would go at it. And sometimes it was very public, but we will, uh, we'll get to that in a second. But first, what are we talking about? Uh, This is Lucy and Desi. Okay, cool. So we, I'm, I'm at the right place. Very good. In the spring of 1943, Uncle Sam sent for Desi. Arnaz spent the next two years in the Army entertaining the troops and more than his share of the young enlisted women. When Lucy got wind of her husband's infidelity, she flew off the handle and filed for divorce. Whenever she saw the man standing in front of her, she melted. He came home, you know, and tried to talk her out of it. And this was like the night before she was supposed to appear in court. And he spent the night with his wife. He thought all was forgiven. And he woke up the next morning and saw her getting dressed and like, where are you going? And she said, I'm gonna go divorce you. But love saved the day. The divorce suit was dropped and in November of 1945, Desi was discharged from the army. Lucy was glad to have her husband back where she could keep an eye on him. And Desi was glad to get back into show business. Movie roles were still hard to come by, so Desi returned to his band, playing regular gigs at the El Capitan Theater in Hollywood and Cyril's on the Sunset Strip. Yeah, so well, first of all, uh, by my girl Lucy, that's a that's a man's move right there. It's no wonder she rose to power. That's the move of a <laughs> you have him over, you fuck, and then you're like, "What do you think I'm doing? I'm going to get divorced." Thanks. What a night. 
Uh, yeah, there's cab money on the nightstand, bitch. Beat it. <laughs> I was. Um, I, I had no clue. I until uh, I was cutting these. I had no idea yeah. that they were actually married in real life. No idea. Really? Yeah. No clue. Oh yeah. I mean, they had a uh, volatile relationship. Seems so. That that lasted about twenty years. They did eventually end up getting divorced. Um, but their story together is. Uh, inspiring in some ways because they did a lot like for show business they did a tremendous amount right however as you heard in that clip desi liked to sling it wherever he could oh did this guy love fucking (laughs) but but something that's interesting about um desi arnez uh as you heard there he's um a cuban immigrant and in cuba his family was very wealthy but when they came to america they lost everything basically um, so he had to kind of work his way up and he got into entertainment and, uh, in the entertainment business, he was incredibly discriminated against. And that's why he basically, you know, he found, um, this musical career that like, I, it seemed like he enjoyed, but he always wanted more. And when you hear about the, the movers and shakers of that era, you don't really ever hear about Desi Arnaz, but I mean, what this guy did is like truly incredible. I mean, we'll, we have clips that um, talk about these a little more in depth, but like he essentially invented now to be fair, this is probably something that they would have figured out eventually anyways, but like he's the guy that invented reruns. (laughs) They needed that because uh, Lucy was pregnant during um, one of the seasons of I love Lucy and Desi was like, why don't you just rerun old episodes? And they were like, what? No one will ever watch those. (laughs) Now it's basically all TV is. If you're throwing true TV right now, it's just impractical jokers over and over again. So, um, so you can thank Lucy and Desi for that. Um, as well as much more like we'll get into, but, uh, the studio, when they wanted to make I love Lucy said, uh, they had a particular actor in mind, of course, a white guy. And Lucy said, no, I want my husband to play that role. And they were like, Lucy, no one's going to believe you are with a Spaniard. <laughs> and she's like, well, it's my, it is my husband. And they're like, even still, <laughs> they were no like, one's going to buy it. No, that's so, my real husband. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> so Lucy and Desi did something that you see a lot now, but then was probably unheard of is they basically tested out their act together. <laughs> they went on the road and said like, Hey, if they, they're not buying the Lucy and Desi business, let's show them that it works. So they would go on the road. Desi would play music and they would do this kind of two man show. Um, I couldn't find clips of it, but I imagine not dissimilar from what like Stiller and Mira did that sort of a thing. Um, so that's what they did. They took that on the road. It was very successful. And then finally, Lucy was like, do you, will you believe that we're married now? And they were like, all right, fine. (laughs) Against their better judgment. So they let this Cuban bastard into the business and he took it over. He took it by storm. And, uh, they were also able to, um, buy that are that RKO studios, the radio station I was talking about. Um, they were able to turn that into Desi Lu Studios, which became a uh, very powerful television producing studio. 
Um, so yeah, Lucy was able to, uh, get her husband involved and uh, he made the most of it, but we'll talk a little bit, a bit about that, but first let's play another clip here. We wanted to work together and Lucy was doing a radio show called my favorite husband. And then CBS wanted her to, uh, was the radio show version as popular as the TV show turned out? It was a very popular radio show. Yeah. She was on for about three years. And then they wanted her to transfer to television, and I, we, you know, we wanted to work together. Yeah. So she says, "I want Desi to play the husband." Well, the husband in the radio show was Richard Denning, guy that played the governor in Hawaii Five-O. You know, well, it's a tall, blonde, blue-eyed vice president of a bank or something. I said, I'll never be able to get away with that part, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So the same writers that were doing My Favorite Husband, Jess Oppenheimer and uh, Bob Carroll Jr. and Madeline Davis, they're now doing Alice, Bob and Madeline and I. Mm-hmm. They, you know, kind of came up uh, and me with the music and the orchestra leader and uh, then nobody wanted me to play Ricky. Uh, by nobody, you mean the, the heads of the network, I would guess? The network, the sponsor, nobody. You yeah. know, and they said, who the hell is going to believe this uh, Baba Lou fellow is going to be married to this yeah. <laughs> typical American girl, you know? Yeah. Funniest part of it is that we had been married for 10 years right then, you know? Uh, so- <laughs> so the the one thing I will give them is his accent is very thick. Uh, so if that was the only, if they were like, Hey, we don't think people are going to be able to understand them. I understand that to an extent, but he was able to make that work to his uh, comedic advantage. Back then like they, they, was, they, they didn't have to tiptoe around saying that they could just come out and be like, eh, no one's going to understand. Now you have to be like, yeah. uh, listen, <laughs> learn some English and come back and talk to <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, Desi completely used that to his advantage because Ricky Ricardo is one of the most, um, at least up until like when I was a kid, that was one of the most imitated and parodied characters in television history. Oh, for sure. You know, like when I was nine years old, I didn't know what the fuck I love Lucy was, but I knew that Ricky voice, <laughs> Lucy, you know, like um, I knew how to impersonate him, even though I didn't know who he was. Right. End of the cable guy. It's everywhere. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that is, uh, uh, very impressive and also like impressive just that they did it because it's surprising with a lot of the censorship and things that were going on back then. It's surprising they caved to that just because it was such a time where like an interracial couple was genuinely controversial, you know? So Mm. I'm, I'm surprised that not only it was on television, but that it was embraced by America. It's a feather in our caps, I think. Right. Um, what's next? Uh, it's continuation compromises. Yeah. So this is a little bit of the censorship I was talking about. And we kind of, when we talked about Norman Lear and all in the family, we talked about a little bit about this and Norman Lear pushed back against the studios. This was 20 years after, uh, I love Lucy, but, uh, Ricky and Lucy were more willing to compromise with certain things. We talked about you couldn't sleep in the same bed. What what other kinds of things, uh, compromises, did you have to make? Well, for the well, show? well, you know, when she was going to have the baby, uh, I told the uh, head writer at the time, was uh, Jess Oppenheimer, and I said, Lucy's going to have a baby. She says, what are we going to do? I said, what do you mean, what are we going to do? She's going to have a baby. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> she already had my daughter, Lucy. Uh-huh. And uh, they won't let us do the thing. You know, you couldn't even say they were pregnant. 
in those days. Right. They say I had to say spectin. <laughs> <laughs> That's another um, him using that to his advantage, by the way, because they wanted to say, him to say expecting. And so he said, well, if I say expecting, it'll get a cheap laugh, you know, like, right. At least. But it's the pregnant thing is the oddest thing to me. And listen, I was born, you know, 40 years later, so maybe I'll never get it. But uh, or 50 years later, I guess. Um, but uh, I don't understand why pregnancy was such a taboo subject like it's how we were sex can be a little more tawdry so i understand that i guess but like pregnancy how do we think we got here you know like what who are we protecting i don't understand it. We, we can't admit that lucy let a cuban do that to her <laughs> right. they have a kid on the show i don't understand adopted yeah. so it was uh it's very weird but yeah they were uh and lucy and desi as opposed to Norman Lear, I think we're just like looking to get into show business. So they're more willing to say like, ah, yeah, we'll say expecting whatever, who cares? Um, which, which is, there's something to be said for that because compromising, like they were able to get an interracial couple on TV, which is probably more important than being able to say, you know, at the end of the day, they, uh, they were smart about it and they were definitely, um, smart business people. Cause like I said, uh, Desi Lu productions became huge, became a monster. Um, they created things like, uh, mission impossible, star Trek. Um, I think Dick Van Dyke and Andy Griffith were both under Desi Lu studios. I could be wrong about that one, but, um, a lot of, a lot of very big, big iconic, um, television shows from that era. And, that was on the back of, you know, this Cuban guy that no one wanted to let in the show business and some broad, you know, right. <laughs> so incredibly impressive uh, that they were able to pull that off when you think of the time. But uh, what's next? Communism. Oh, yeah. This was very interesting. This I had never this I had never heard about uh, Lucy. So this was a time I can't remember what episode we would have talked about this but we have talked about it before it's interesting like there was genuine prejudice for your political beliefs at that time so much so that they would run you out of the business if they found out um i like uh that movie trumbo starring brian cranston that i was a big fan of um that's all about dalton trumbo who was a writer who had to write under different aliases and pen names um just to make a living because people wouldn't uh, associate with him, yet they would. It was like an open secret. Everyone knew Dalton Trumbo was writing these movies, but no one would associate with him because he was a communist. And that's something that I didn't realize Lucy dealt with uh, as well. And so the story was that he felt very strongly about being a communist. And so he was, after she moved out of here, was actually holding communist party meetings here. His name was Fred Hunt. But Lucy, in 1936, when they first came out here, registered 
as a communist on her voters registration and so that's what ended up basically coming back to haunt her many many years later uh, she was successful doing I Love Lucy and a few weeks before they were going into the third season she got a call from the committee that was investigating people accused of being anti-American or communist um, they asked her to come in voluntarily and meet with them so she did she went in there actually twice and gave interviews and told them straight up I was not a communist I didn't believe that but I was I was doing it to appease my grandfather that's what he wanted and uh, so believe it or not the committee believed her and uh, and they were going to release that she had been cleared and everything. However, the problem was is that before that could happen, uh, Walter Winchell, who had a newspaper article out here, mentioned that she had been accused of it, put it out there in the papers, which got all the papers then investigating. And the next thing you know, there was a big headline on the cover of the L.A. Chronicle saying that Lucy was red and all of a sudden everybody was up in arms. They uh, they didn't know what to do her and Desi were like completely uh, you know hit sideways from this um, she honestly didn't even remember that she had done that or it had been put out of her mind it had been so long and so the first time that she came to rehearse for the next season of I Love Lucy there were actually people out front protesting yeah so it's pretty I mean pretty wild pretty, just wild um the way they treated people based on like how they voted. It's crazy that that happened in this country. Not that long ago, honestly, but um, kind of happening. The other now. thing is, what's that? It's kind of happening now. Well, it, it could, it could eventually. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. I guess, you know what? You're not, at least as for, in Hollywood terms, you're not wrong actually. Right. Um, but the thing I found is like the, the excuse that she gave. I remember watching this video and my first thought was like, oh, she's lying. There's no way. Like the the they were the meet there were meetings held at her house, this and that. Like didn't make any sense that she didn't vote commie. And then I realized, like, oh, I would lie too. I'd be lying in a second. <laughs> oh yeah, it was my grandfather. He's a crazy old man. I didn't want to make him angry, you know? Right. I meant I meant Mila Kunis, you know, same thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That'll be topical when this comes out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what's next before I uh, spoil the uh, the rest of the communism bit? Uh, her talking about the business. Oh, okay, yeah. So um, I just want to say this first to finish off the communism thing is uh, Desi was a charming motherfucker. Would I mean quite literally charm the pants off of some people? And uh, he opened the show. So uh, another thing that Lucy, I love Lucy, was first at was uh, the live studio audience for a multicam sitcom. Um, I will say, I'll, I'll say that about things from this time, and then someone will pipe up and be like, actually, no, there was a pilot filmed in 1938, and it's like, all right, well, this is the first successful show. Um, so, uh, like you heard in that clip there, um, you know, people were up in arms about this. People were very angry. Uh, this was a hot button issue at the time and people didn't know what to believe. And uh, Desi came out and he cracked a few jokes and then he just said, uh, I'd like to introduce a woman who the only thing read about her is her hair. It's Lucy. <laughs> Come out, Lucy. <laughs> and the crowd went nuts for her. So he knew he knew how to, uh, you know, you know how to play the, the politics game, I think. 
Um, but yeah, I, that didn't wind up being uh, too big a deal. They were able to put out those fires. But uh, this is Lucy, I think, basically talking about the idea of um, like getting typecast and, and different things she had to deal with in the business. If when you went through all that, then it must have really, as you were going along and finally beginning to get into the business and beginning to move, when you run into the people who make it hard for you on the way up, you must really learn to hate them. Don't you? I never ran into anyone who, who really tried to make it hard for me. Because, yeah. and I'll, I'll tell you why I say that. If anyone was trying to make it hard for me, I wasn't aware of it. Mm -hmm. But I was so grateful to be any part of the business that I was unaware of anything else. I was a part of it. I didn't care what I did. They never had to ask me twice to do anything. I, I found that very interesting just because I feel, and I think it's with everyone in Hollywood or anyone like, you know, in uh, positions like that, there's almost some like guilt attached to being successful. Mm -hmm. So you feel almost forced to tell, you know, your hardships and Lucy in every interview I saw of her was kind of the opposite where she's like, no, you know, I worked hard. Like I did, you know, I, I, I did what I could. I feel like I, w I was talented and I worked hard and that's why I'm successful. There's not a lot of, uh, and I'm not saying every hardship story is bullshit, but with every, with uh, Lucy, there wasn't a lot of bullshit in, in the way she talked, which I found interesting. There's a lot of people that are like, uh, uh, yeah, I was eating on the street corner until I was 38. <laughs> right. And yeah, it's, it seemed like she didn't grow up like well off or anything, but you know, you don't see her um, talking a lot about that. Something she was very blunt about was uh, her divorce and her first husband, Desi Arnaz. Um, I think we have a clip of uh, her and Barbara Walters, and I don't know if I clipped this part, but she straight up says, like, hey, he's a loser. I married a loser. <laughs> she, she was, by all accounts, that was, like, her one true love. Like, they genuinely were in love. But Desi just loved sticking it wherever he could. And I think they were both very jealous. Um, there, there are stories of like both of them um, setting the other one up in scenarios so that they could like keep an eye on them. It was probably more like uh, guys would look at Lucy and then he'd be like, oh, yeah, and then stick his dick wherever it was warm. <laughs> well, I, I think I think there was like one story that uh, that Desi basically had a, a, a fuck room in Desi Lou Studios or something like that. Jesus. So. He had a, he, the guy had it all mapped out, you know? Weinstein before it, Weinstein. They had a, uh, a tumultuous relationship, certainly. What's next? Uh, her talking about him. Oh, perfect. I mean, when you and Desi were married, you had everything. We had nothing. He was a, uh, he had his own band, and he was in a play in New York, and he was a kid. When you were married. When we were then, first married. At the success. Then we build up right. a lot of things. Right. But, but then when you while they were building, they would not believe that he was doing the building. Yeah. And he was doing the successful building of a very well-run empire. I was doing the acting and having the children. I, was, I had no part of it. I took that on much later. But I knew what he had suffered, really, and uh, how he did not deserve that. And just because he was Cuban and once yeah. a bongo player did not uh, warrant calling him any of those names. And he worked very hard and got a lot of respect for what he did. And they forgot about that. That's interesting for a couple of reasons. Because like I said, I, I mentioned she called him a loser. That's like two minutes after this. <laughs> She's like, yeah, he was a loser. <laughs> but 
she still always had that respect for him and what he did in the the business and the you know oppression and and racism that he had to deal with and everything. Um, so she did definitely have respect for him for that and for what he uh, created. And the other part I found is interesting is that she, like I said about her honesty, she just straight up says like I had nothing to do with the business, you know. Right. She did eventually. Um, like she, you know, I think she got in the divorce. And then she she did have a hand um, in certain things that went along with the business, and boy, did she make a killing from it. Mm. Um, but uh, she straight up says again, the pressure that people would feel to justify that, like you know, if you just get divorced and kind of fall into a studio, maybe you didn't earn necessarily that you didn't do the work to build, you'd be like, oh no, no, I supported him in these ways. And that she's like, no, he did all the work, and now it's mine. <laughs> Um, do you know, take a stab at her net worth? Um, net worth. I don't know. The one number I did memorize because it really stuck with me was, um, she sold Desilu studios for $17 million, Mm -hmm. which in today's money would be, I think it was like 140 million or something like that. It would have been worse. Yeah, it says that she, when she passed, she had a net worth of 40 million, which in today's equivalent was almost 100. Yeah. So, um, there. Well, there's an interesting story about her inheritance too. Um, she she married Gary Morton in that interview with Barbara Walters. Uh, she's with Gary Morton, who was a comedian and an actor. Um, I don't know how successful he was really in, in that interview, you can tell she went the opposite way of, uh, of Desi where she was married to a man she had zero control of. I mean, she's interrupting him and what, what, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. (laughs) She is on this guy's case. She went the opposite way in uh, her second marriage for sure. Um, but they, they worked together on some things as well. Um, but yeah, her inheritance, I, I, a lot of it went to her kids. Um, she had two children, Desi Jr. and Lucy Arnaz. Um, and they each got, what did you say? 40 million it was total when she died. Yeah. But that was I'm before trying to think of the numbers. Mm. I can't remember exactly. Um, but her and her, the, Lucy and her brother each got a third. And uh, another third went to Gary Morton, her husband, which makes sense to an extent. Um, but Gary Morton got remarried to some LGPA, uh, LPGA golfer. Really? Yeah. And then he died a few years later. And so um, some things that Gary inherited from the estate were like uh, yeah, Rolls Royce. But I think maybe not most importantly, but um, more, more valuable would be Lucy's like memorabilia. There were a lot of um, uh, Lucy trinkets, you know, one, mm. only one in the world that, uh, that Gary had and the, the new wife inherited those. And so there was a whole messy lawsuit with the kids and uh, this lady. And basically I don't think the kids made out very well. I think, um, some of them got donated to a museum, but like, I don't think they got any of the money. So, uh, a goddamn shame for whatever reason, whether it's Jerry Lewis or Lucille ball, all these comics that came up in this time had, um, 
very messy inheritance situations for some reason. Yeah, that one I can see though because uh, it went to him and he died and all his stuff goes to his current wife and that includes yeah. that yeah, stuff. Yeah, that, that one makes him a little more. It, that's not Lucy's fault. We can't right, for that. right, right. She didn't write her kids out of the will. <laughs> right, <laughs> like exactly. some of these and, monsters. And uh, Desi, Desi Junior's story, I guess, is pretty tragic. He got into all kinds of drugs and things like that. He's still alive, so I, I think he cleaned up at some point. But he, much like his father, was uh, slinging it all over town at a at a young age. And uh, I think he had a kid when he was like a teenager that he didn't acknowledge for a while. All kinds of shit oh boy. with uh, Desi Jr. But what uh, what's next? Uh, talking about ending the show. Oh, yeah. We, we got so sidetracked that um, <laughs> Lucy had a 25-year run on television. Uh, Lucille Ball, that is, Be- between I Love Lucy, uh, The Lucy Show, and the reason I know all these is because of uh, an episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> Here's Lucy. <laughs> um, those were all Lucille Ball that were essentially a consistent 25-year run, um, which is pretty wild. And the other crazy thing is, like, the titles were all, obviously, they had her name, so they were pretty similar. But the plots seemed somewhat similar, too. Obviously, the second two shows uh, did not involve Desi at all. But it's almost like if in, you know, 2000, uh, Sein, you know, Seinfeld ends in 98, and then in, in 2000, a show called Jerry starts, where Jerry Seinfeld, you know, uh, scrutinizes the mundane goings on of everyday life. <laughs> but this time he's married. So and, it's, now it's a different show. And he's a theater comic. <laughs> yeah right yeah he's an actor he's not a comedian <laughs> see it's different folks um but they were all crazy successful the only um flop that she seemed to have on television was um at the end of her life and keep in mind she's fucking 75 at this point um she had a show come out that only lasted three months that was pretty much a failure but other than that, uh, monumentally successful. And she had like, you know, one-off specials on TV as well and things. Um, so this is her talking about ending the kind of 25 year run of the three different variations of Lucy shows. Yeah. After 25 years of doing the weekly series, you start in 1974. Then what was it like? You got up in the morning and you didn't have to run to work. Traumatic. Very. Well, for the first three or four months, I was in, I was in limbo. I was just in shock. I loved getting up and going to work. Were you depressed? I was depressed. I was in such a depression that they, you know, the doctor said, you've got to take her away. You've got to find something. I jumped in front of another limousine. It wasn't <laughs> anything I wanted to do but go back to work. Why'd you leave? Oh, I'd been on long enough, I thought, and uh, I kind of always prided myself on knowing when to get off and I felt that really I had stayed out about four or five years longer than I planned which happened because of the children's uh, coming on our show and kind of wanting them to get their wings and fly off on their own which they did and as soon as they did that then I really quit but I'd been planning it for five years I just felt that I'd out you know outgrown that 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 stage and also with the new shows I began to feel a little old-fashioned it's pretty insane because, like, that—that's the reason Seinfeld gave for leaving. He's like, "Hey, we did nine seasons. I want to go out on top. We've pretty much done everything. Like, what else could we do to top what we've already done?" Lucy said that after twenty-five years. Now, 
I don't know. Obviously, Here's Lucy and the Lucy Show didn't have the success, at least certainly not historically, of I Love Lucy. Um, so I don't know. You know, maybe it's a little revisionist history to say those were all wildly successful. But I mean, she stayed on the air for 25 years. So whether or not she was number one or even close isn't really the argument. You know, well, back then, before like every like really well-known show was ever made, just think about all the premises you could hit. Like, not, yes. like any idea is possible. Yeah. Now Lucy is a nurse. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know what, when you look at that, um, character, even just, uh, the Lucy character from I love Lucy, I mean, that's the model of not just, you know, so many wives in, in generic sitcoms, but when you look at actually like innovative shows, like 30 rock is one of my favorite sitcoms ever. Um, and I think Tina Fey is great in it and her character, Liz Lemon is kind of a, a variation, like definitely inspired by Lucille Ball um, or that character. So, you know, the, the, the staying power that that formula had is pretty incredible. And it's like I said about Mort Saul, it's not just that um, they influenced people. It's that they created something that influenced. It didn't exist before them, you know, that's what's really most impressive about. It. Yeah, dude, it's a, it was a, it's relatable for people to watch married people. You're like, oh, well, everyone back then was married. So you're like, oh, sure. I, I get it. Sure, yeah, but like a ton, a ton of people have ripped off Seinfeld and yeah, like all, even great shows. Always Sunny is essentially a Seinfeld ripoff, to put it in, you know, de- degrading terms. It's not all it is, but right. it's definitely influenced by Seinfeld. But Jerry didn't have to invent sitcoms to come up with that, you know? <laughs> yeah. I also, I, I love the idea, too, of uh, them accusing Lucy of being a communist. And they're like, okay, um, is your husband around? Confirm this? Sure. Uh, where, <laughs> yeah, what country is he from? Where's he from? Uh, <laughs> shit. Don't worry about that. Well, she uses the guy that they wanted to play her husband. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What else we got? Uh, someone talking about, I think, is this her daughter talking about Desi Lou Studios? Yeah, this is Lucy Arnaz talking about, is this her talking about the studio? Yes. Yeah, Desi Lou Studios. And like, like, uh, you know, self-admittedly, uh, Lucy's like, meh, didn't have much to do with the business, but then she took over. Um, so this is Lucy, you know, Lucy Jr. For, <laughs> to, I guess, to, uh, separate the two mm. talking about her mother's impact. Was your mother very involved in the business side? No, God, no. She hated the business side. She gets a lot of credit for having run, a, for the first woman to run a studio. Hated that whole thing. Hated it. Just wanted to be Lucy. Just wanted to do her show and not be worried about any of that business stuff. That was Desi's, that was my father's, you know, domain. And when it didn't work out that he was going to leave and she had to buy him out, she kept all the same people that he had hired, brilliant people, and um, and took their advice for the most part. She relied on them as well she should. Made a couple of pretty good decisions on her own just by the seat of her pants. Like, no, let's not cancel Star Trek. I like that. I don't, I don't care if it's expensive or Mission Impossible, you know. Um, the, the, she had good instincts, but she really didn't enjoy the day-to-day business part of it at all. 
pretty wild that Star Trek is on her resume. <laughs> I know. Like, that is a cult following to this day. And she was like, yeah, keep it on the air. You know, who cares? I got to spend a few extra bucks. <laughs> um, but I, I think there's a talent to just that, what, what her daughter just described there. There's a talent to knowing yourself and saying like, hey, not only am I not interested, maybe I couldn't run this studio the way Desi did. There's something to not having an ego that says, I'm going to clean house, fuck these people that were associated with my my cheating prick husband. <laughs> um, or just to say like, hey, if he could do it, I could do it. There's There's a skill to knowing your limits, I think. And to saying, I'm going to hire good people to do this job so that I can keep making money off of their hard work, you know? <laughs> um, and just for a little closure on the Lucy, and I don't know if this is Hollywood bullshit that was spun over the years, um, but they said, and even her daughter said that uh, towards the end of their lives, they did reconcile in some fashion. Like they were much more civil and friendly in the 70s and 80s, say, than they were in the 60s. For sure. Yeah. So the clip of a, the clip of a Lucy calling Desi a loser must have been before that time. <laughs> um, yeah, we're on our last clip, and it's uh, the mighty Don Rickles. Yeah, you know, and this isn't even really relevant to anything, but I figured in place, I couldn't find Norm talking about her. So I figured, uh, why not include a little of this Rickles roast? So a staple of that era in Hollywood was at some point, you would uh, be the the subject of a Dean Martin roast. And the most prominent name on that, at least in my opinion, was always uh, the great Don Rickles. So this is just a little taste of that. I must be honest. I never liked Lucille Ball. I never did. (laughs) (laughs) We gotta be honest about it. All these guys come up, Lucy Darling, Henry Fonda, Jesse, Jesse, but you're my idol, Henry. Henry? Are you up? <laughs> no. <laughs> you are as beautiful as ever. My wife said to me last night, as we laid in bed, she said, is Lucy young? And I said, baby, young is not the point. It's what's in your heart. Right, Lucy? Lucy? <laughs> Put her in a home. <laughs> uh, look at this. The husband went, yeah. Now, He did. He got all that money. So it's not far off, Donnie. He sure did. But uh, I I love that at that time, like roasts were new enough that you could literally just start by saying like, I never liked her. And that's a joke. (laughs) That's that's basically how uh, a tough crowd was. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I mean, you want to talk uh, influences that a lot of that crew is definitely influenced by Rickles for sure. A thousand percent. Um, but, uh, another feather in Lucy's cap at the end of her life is, uh, she got a lifetime achievement award at the Oscars. Um, uh, and I, I didn't find any of her speech interesting enough to include, but I will say, uh, she kept it short. She kept it brief, which is actually impressive for an Oscars speech. So especially a lifetime achievement award, but, um, yeah, so I, you know, she had a much, you know, probably more in-depth career than that. I wanted to at least cover the basics because like I said, she is absolutely a historic figure. You can't talk about the history of comedy or comedy television without talking about Lucille Ball. Um, if I missed anything, feel free to let me know, whether it be on Twitter, you can message me on Patreon. I'd prefer you do it that way. 
Um, but wherever you want to reach out to me, feel free and let me know. And we'll, uh, we'll eventually talk about it. I'm sure. But that is the, uh, that's it for the Lucille ball episode. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, I do. I will say I get more and more. I don't know why I always feel the need to preface it. And like, uh, you know, get, get a warning guys. This is an episode about an old person. Cause, but I, I, cause I was nervous about those at first and more and more, I do get people saying like, I didn't really know Dick about this person. And so this episode was nice. So I, I do like to hear that. That's how I felt. Yes. Good. Yeah. Um, and for more episodes like this, if you want episodes a week early, uh, if you say to yourself, Mike, I would have loved to hear this last week. It would have been so much better last week. <laughs> that is a way to do that. Go to the Patreon. Um, or if you would just want to support the show for free, you can do that. Uh, everywhere you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, YouTube, subscribe to the YouTube page. Um, and then if you want bonus episodes, episodes a week early, and uh, just want to support the show, do that on Patreon. And the best way to find all of those is blindmike.net. That is blindmike.net. Um, and to do the same for everything Craig has going on in his life, yeah, you can go to a verygoodshow.org. Please come over. Try out the show for free if you like it. Maybe dip your toe on the Patreon. Yes. They're um they're much like Don Rickles if he was hit in the head with a mallet, is how I would describe that show. It's so kind of a roast. You're not really <laughs> it's incoherent a little bit, but sure, sure. Uh, all right, everybody. We will talk to you next time on why you laugh. Zip it up and zip it out. Yeah.